Hello, thank you for tuning in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. In all of the other instances where Israel had told God, get lost, we don't want you, God was merciful. But how long does his mercy last? We're very good at taking charge of the everyday, aren't we? We tend to leave the big issues and problems to God, but we handle the everyday mundane ones ourselves. Is rain a big issue or an everyday one? Would a majestic and mighty God be interested in such a mundane thing as rain? The infinite God of raindrops. That's Dr. Corbett's topic tonight on Finding Truth Matters. Let's join him now. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide us, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to hear your word and to see the riches of your word, the treasures of your word. Help us, Lord, to be released, to be set free, because your word and your spirit bring liberty to our souls right now. Lord, for those of us that are flustered, those of us that are weighed down with the cares and worries and anxieties of life, I pray, Lord, that in this moment together, as we ponder your word, as we treasure your word, as we hold your word up like a diamond and we we move it in the light, that, Father, it would shed light into our soul. And we pray for this in the wonderful name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to grow as a preacher. I don't want to be lazy as a preacher. So that means for me, as a preacher, I just can't rock up and go, here's the word of the Lord for today. Judas went out and hanged himself. Let's get another word for the Lord. Go and do thou likewise. So we're in Jeremiah. Now, so far we've taken our time and we're going to continue to take our time through the book of Jeremiah. And here we are in chapter 14 and we've seen that the condition of the people is, is fairly dire. We've summed up their condition, their spiritual condition, with three I's, the, 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 using the letter I. They were immoral. They had been practising immorality. And this was rampant. Secondly, they were idolatrous. They had been worshipping all kinds of strange gods, none the least the god of Moloch and Astarte. These were the moon and the sun as personified by particular idols that they had established. And their immorality was often done before these idols. And they were also willfully ignorant. They had willfully rejected God's word. And you might recall that it was during the boyhood era of Jeremiah that the law was actually rediscovered. And despite having that law discovered and the initial reforms that King Josiah had instigated, the succeeding kings had shut up the law and were not listening to it. So this is the condition of Israel. They were also very, very religious. They were feigning religion. They were pretending to be religious. They, they had what's called a form of religion, and that, that is known as formal religion. And this has been a blight on religious people for centuries where you actually forget what you're actually there for and you forget the heart of why you're there. 
And your arrogance causes you to become conceited. And this has happened all through the ages where people have, have, have presented a form of religion formal religion, a form where they, where they have routine and everything's by the clock and everything's you know, regimented, but there's no God in it. And Paul the Apostle spoke of this when he said there would come a time when people would forsake God. They would deny the power of God, all the while having a form of godliness. And I hope in our experience of church that we're not in a rush. I hope that we... We come and we still ourselves and we allow the Holy Spirit to breathe and to move and to have his way. And as someone may say, I've been having a terrible time this week, I pray that we, we just become vessels and channels of the Holy Spirit to pray for them and to see what God can do. And so in our gathering, we expect that God will heal the sick. We expect that God will speak. We expect that God will deliver and set people free from all kinds of things that have got them bound. And none of those things can be by magic formula or liturgy or form. But this is the condition of Israel at the time of Jeremiah. It is remarkable how often in the darkest hours of the world, God will set a light, someone, and usually in the form of a baby, in fact, I was reading someone this week who said Christianity is remarkable for its history in that the biblical account shows that whenever mankind went into its darkest hour, God raised up a baby. We have the story of, of the nucleus of Israel and God raises up a Joseph. We have the story of Israel in captivity in Egypt and and God raises up a Moses. We have the story of Israel slipping into its darkest hour. And God raises up a boy, Jeremiah. And the biblical account is that we, we get a sneak peek into their childhood. So the, the most profound men that God has used to shape the world, he's got a hold of from their youth. And of course, the, the greatest example of this is Jesus Christ himself. And when Jesus asked the question of his disciples, who do men say I am? One of the first people they said is, we think you're Jeremiah. And there are plenty of people who agree with us. There are plenty of people. That, sorry, they didn't say we think you're Jeremiah. The crowds think you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So there's a parallel between Jeremiah and Jesus. And why is that? Because this was the darkest hour of Israel in their history. It's made all the more dark because they pretended to be religious. They had a form of religion. And the worst spiritual condition to be is one where you actually pretend that your spiritual life is quite strong and healthy and happy and everything's well, but on the inside you're rotten to the core. Now this is not, the uh, up until this point, this is the darkest period in Israel's history, but it's not the darkest time in Israel's history. The darkest time in Israel's history was when Jesus Christ was born. It had got worse, not better. We know, rushing ahead in the story here, that... Jeremiah is warning the people that unless they stop and turn back to God and repent, that a nation will come in and take them out of their land and take them to their land and they'll be plundered as a nation. And Jeremiah says, but God will preserve you. He will bring you back so that Messiah can be born. We're now here in this part of Jeremiah and I want to show you this section as we look 
at this. This is our 35th session in the book of Jeremiah so far. And we're now going to look from verses 19 down to verses 22. We're going to see what I hope is some profound things, extremely relevant for where we're at. So Jeremiah, from verses 19 to 22, I've entitled this The Infinite God of Raindrops. The Infinite God of Raindrops. I want to introduce two words into your vocabulary if they're not already there. It's the transcendence of God, which means his greatness, his out-there-ness, his supremacy over everything. That's transcendent. And another word is imminent, the imminency of God, the closeness of God. The God that we worship is both the Lord of the universe and the Lord over the birds of the air, the, the tiniest little dust mite in the carpet that we're, we're privileged to have here. He knows all from the microbial life to the nebulae being formed right now. He knows it all. The infinite God of raindrops. We're reading from Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 19. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing. But behold, terror. What, what's happening here? Jeremiah perhaps doesn't realize this is Israel's darkest hour. This is not just another dark patch. This is the darkest hour. Because in all of the other dark hours, the prophets have come before God and said, Oh God, be merciful to us. And God was. In all of the other instances where Israel had told God, Get lost, we don't want you. God was merciful. But how long does his mercy last? There comes a point where God the God of all mercy says, enough. And the Bible uses this expression, the sins of the fathers has come upon the children. The sins of the fathers. Why has the sins of the fathers come upon the children? Is it like these children are innocent? No, it's because the children have perpetuated the sins of the fathers. The very thing that their fathers and their grandfathers did, they do more of. And God says, enough, enough. And Jeremiah is staggered by this. He's staggered. There comes a time when God's mercy has expired and Jeremiah is experiencing it with disbelief because the concept was that the infinite God had infinite mercy and Jeremiah is discovering that the infinite God does not offer infinite mercy. He offers mercy. And he offers that mercy not infinitely, but finitely. And Jeremiah is staggered, staggered at this. How long have you utterly rejected us? Jeremiah is battling with this. And so Jeremiah knows what the previous prophets did was they appealed to God. They confessed on behalf of the nation to God. And so Jeremiah immediately changes gear. And this is the gear he's about to go into. And I want you to notice this, that true repentance, which is the only means of establishing a relationship and really the only means of continuing fellowship with God, 
exhibits three natural tendencies, three natural responses. In other words, if you repent, you won't even be able to help doing this. It will just happen. This is what you will do. These are the three natural responses. Firstly, contrition. What is contrition? A deep sorrow over your sin. A deep sorrow over your sin. Not the fact that you've been caught, but the fact that you realize what you've done. Deep sorrow over sin. That's the first step in repentance. Secondly, confession and acknowledgement of sin. Oh God, I've sinned. And didn't Jesus tell the story of this where he told the story of two men that went into the temple? One was a priest, one was a publican. And there's the, there's, there's the priest, the Pharisee, I think, sorry, pardon me, the Pharisee who says, oh God, I thank you, I'm not like this man who's a sinner. That Pharisee didn't acknowledge his guilt. He didn't have any contrition of sin. He didn't confess his sin. And then Jesus contrasts that with the publican, which is a, the old expression for a tax collector, known to be a cheat, known to be a swindler, known to be an extortioner. These people were the, were the scum of society. And here's this tax collector. And Jesus has him not on his feet, but on his knees. And he's saying, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. A deep awareness of his sin, contrition, and a confession of that sin. That's what Jesus said is necessary for the foundation of a relationship with God. And what results from there? Thirdly, conversion. Conversion. You live differently. Your life is different. You think different. Your priorities are different now. You are converted. Well, you didn't do something you now do do something where you were doing something you shouldn't have done you now no longer do something you've done it's not even like a huge effort is something has changed in your heart and your soul this is the three most natural responses of repentance we're reading from verse 20 notice what jeremiah's doing here we acknowledge our wickedness see what he's doing he's offering Confession on behalf of the people. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Now he's going to appeal to something all of the prophets appeal to when they are interceding for the nation. This is interesting that those who would preach must also intercede. Those who would speak must also pray. If you are going to witness and share with your friends about the love of Christ, you must also pray for them. Someone has said before you can bring Christ to the man, you must bring the man to Christ in prayer. And so here we have Jeremiah who's pleading with God on behalf of the people and see what he's doing. He's acknowledging their sin. He knows that this is what the prophets do. Now he's going to appeal to something very, very close to the heart of God, and that is God's name. The name of the Lord reveals his character. All of the names that God has, and if we can call them names, they're probably more appropriately referred to as titles, but if we think of them as names, that when, when people ask of the Lord, what's your name? God gave certain names that revealed something of who he was. And so when God says, I am the Lord, I don't know how many people realize that capital L, lowercase o-r-d, means master, Lord, a, a Lord. But how many realize in the English Bibles, and most English Bibles do this, capital L, Small capital O-R-D means something else. It means the God of the universe. We're in verse 21. 
Do not spurn us. Now notice what he's doing now. For your name's sake. See, what does the name of God mean? It means merciful, gracious. What does God mean? It means creator. If he's creator, he's your owner. If he's your owner, he's your master. If he's your owner, your creator, he's the one who knows best for you. He's your father. This is the name of God. We could look at the names of God. The name of God, uh, Yahweh Rafika, the Lord heals. That's a name. Yahweh Yaira, the one who provides. These are attributes of God revealed in his name. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. And it's not the throne that's in in thought here. It's the one seated upon it. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Jeremiah is now pleading with God. And having been told by God on two occasions earlier in this chapter as well, in verses 11 and 12, do not pray for these people. They're beyond prayer. And Jeremiah is not giving up. Because he knows God is merciful. He knows God is forgiving. He knows God is gracious. And he's still appealing. And Jeremiah is about to be stunned. Because God is about to show him that that's not all he is. He's a God of justice and a God of fairness. And a God who will always do what's right. Wow. He's... he's, Employed this tactic in verse 7 where he said, Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many and we've sinned against you. So Jeremiah's using this and he's using something that Moses did. Remember when, when Moses came down the, the mountain and there was Israel carrying on in idolatry. And God says, just stand aside, Moses. I'm going to destroy them all. And Moses says, no, God, you can't. Don't destroy them. It's your reputation on the line here. It's your name on the line here. You destroy them and the nations of the world will think you could not have brought them out and brought them into their own land. It's your name at stake here. Don't do it, oh God. For your name's sake, don't destroy them. So Moses prayed this way. And we read... In uh, 1 Samuel 12, 22, something that that Samuel did, and it's, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And Jeremiah is appealing to this God, the God who knows our every need. And right now Israel is in need. And what do they need more than anything else? We read in verse 22. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? For we set our hope on you. You do all these things. Not only does God create the vastness of the night sky, the universe, the wonders of creation. And someone has said, but how can we be it if there's so much out there? If you've never heard Mozart 
And you hear a number of pieces from Mozart and you go, gee, it almost sounds like one bloke wrote all those. And this tells me something about this man. If you never heard, you never knew of Beethoven and you heard Beethoven, or perhaps one of my favourite classical composers, Johann Sebastian Bach. The guy was a genius and his music is brilliant. And you hear Bach and, and then you hear another piece that you didn't know Bach wrote and you go, wow, almost sounds like the same guy wrote. And eventually you'd go, that's Bach, that's Beethoven, that's Mozart. Well, guess what? When you look at creation and you see the Helix Nebula, you, you see Andromeda, you see the Triangulum Galaxy, you see these black holes that are gargantuan. You go, wow, whoever did this must be awesome. This tells me something about this God. He's awesome. And he's concerned with the smallest cell in your body. And Jeremiah says, oh God, we have sinned. We've let you down. We don't deserve a thing from you. But oh God, right now, we need rain. Please, God. You're not only the God of the universe, but you're the God of a raindrop. Please, God, raindrops, rain, please, God, the infinite God of raindrops. See, the one who rules the entire universe, the Bible says he holds it all together with just the power of who he is, is the one who knows your every need. He knows exactly what you need and he is the source of your need. What is the single greatest need humans have? And I'm going to cheat and I'm going to ask Michael Dixon, what is the single greatest need the world has? Water. Thank you. It is. Without water, we die. Without water, we die. You can go apparently 40 days without food, but if you go more than three or four days without water, you're going to be in a bad way. We need water. The single greatest need we have is for water. And Jeremiah says, oh God, give us rain. Give us rain. You see, with rain, it, it waters the, the crops. With the crops, that wheat can be made with wheat and barley. Bread can be made a staple food, bread and water. But it starts with rain. We need rain. Oh God, give us rain. Give us rain. Do you need rain for your soul right now? Water. For your soul is your greatest need right now. I was listening to YFM the other day and I heard Karen Dixon quote this on her Wednesday morning program. She said, and she was reading a quote, the best thing to bring to dinner is hunger. The best thing to bring to dinner is hunger. Now, she didn't mean for me to think about that for the next week. But I did, and I still do. The best thing to bring to dinner is hunger. You know, nothing makes food taste nicer when you're actually hungry. The best thing to bring to church is thirst. Come thirsty. Come wanting a drink. Let Jesus refresh your thirst. And so we read, in John 6.35, knowing that Jeremiah cries to God for water, what he didn't know was that the one who 
people thought was just like him would stand in the temple and he would cry these words. Jesus said to them on the steps of the temple, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Are you thirsty? Do you need water for your soul? It comes from believing in Jesus. It comes from saying, Jesus, you are my saviour. I need you. And whatever your need, whatever your need, you may have a financial need. You may have a relationship need. You may have an emotional need. You may have a physical need. The need is met in Jesus. He is the bread and the water for your soul. Let's pray. Oh, God, please, Lord, please, Lord, for those that are listening to me right now and they are not thirsty, I pray, I pray that they would recognize a deep thirst in their soul. Lord, for those that are here and they've been, they've been enjoying refreshing water for one, two, three years, Four years, five years, ten years, twenty years, some thirty, some even forty years have continued to drink that refreshing water. I pray, Lord, that people would look at us as a well-watered garden. People would look and say, where are you getting your water from? I want some of that water. And just like that woman at the well whom Jesus said, woman, drink from me and you'll never thirst again. That, oh God, in one respect, I pray that we'll continue to drink from Jesus so that we never thirst again. And I pray, Lord, that we will be dispensers of that water of life. Help us to see thirsty people and to pour water into their soul. Oh, great God of the cosmos, the God who is concerned with the number of hairs on our head, the very issues of life that we face right now, and Jeremiah knew it. And I pray, Lord, that we might know it as well, that you are the great God. And now if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ and you're thirsty, you know that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy that thirst that you have. You don't have to do anything. You just have to believe, believe, believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Believe that he died on the cross in your place. He died the death that you deserve to die. He was the object of God's mercy. He's the demonstration of God's grace. Believe on him and you shall have water for your soul. It begins with a prayer like this. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Feel that contrition. Confess your sin. I have sinned. Oh, God. And now I come to you and I ask you to help me to be born again. Be converted. And Lord, for those of us that have grown weary and perhaps we've lived with a parching in our mouth, I pray that, Lord, once again, we'll drink on that refreshing, refreshing Jesus, that life-giving water. I pray. Amen. He is majestic. He is mighty. He is the infinite God of raindrops. To order a CD or DVD copy of the full version of tonight's program, 
then write to us at media at lagana.org. Podcasts and other Finding Truth Matters resources are available either via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. Dr Andrew Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us tonight. We look forward to sharing with you at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.